friends. Welcome to Episode 8 of Sally's Performing Arts Lab Podcast. I'm your host, Sally Adams, and I've taught people how to produce original work for the stage for over 30 years. If you go to sallypal.com, you'll find my blog as well as my podcast. You'll also find Sally Pal on Podbean, iTunes, and Stitcher. I hope you'll accept my apologies for being a day late on this episode. Sometimes technical issues can slow things down. Thanks to everyone who's been sharing the blog and the podcast. Pat, George, Emily, Steve, Yelena, Karen, Vicki, and many others. I really appreciate the shares and suggestions. Today's episode is an interview with actor, director, educator, and acting coach, Lisa Stefanik. If you're a fan of Weird Al Yankovic, you may remember her as Phyllis, the Wheel of Fish contestant in his feature-length movie, UHF. Lisa has performed in or directed more shows than could fit on her resume. She starred in several original shows and works with her husband, Vern Stefanik, with students developing new works. We talk about teaching, developing new talent, making old shows new again, and applying rehearsal techniques. Be sure to listen until the end for concise advice from the interview and words of wisdom from George. Let's get started. appreciate you being on Sally Pal. Oh, great. You have been in higher education for quite some time. Didn't you recently retire? Yeah, yeah. I took early retirement actually from the desk job, but I still teach and direct part-time. That's fantastic. Just the fun stuff, so. That's kind of what I was going for. (laughs) Whenever I go in my studio and George is like, what are you doing? I'm like, whatever I want. That's right. Tell me what you're seeing and what you have seen. Have there been any changes in how people relate to producing original work in educational theater? Well, it's kind of a mixed bag, or maybe it's just opposites. You have some people in educational theater who don't want to mess with it. They they look at it as kind of a headache or a bother. It's not something that's established. But I think the trend is more and more to do original work. It's just so much better for the students. They get to write. They get to improve on writing and know why they need to maybe change this or that. They get constructive criticism. Then they get to hear their words come alive. Have you gotten to see that? Mm-hmm. What's that like? It's great. I've seen it myself, but it's hard to describe, isn't it? There is a moment. It is. Uh, sometimes you see the students cringing. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've heard some of them say, oh, you know, you were right. It's learning. Aren't we all always learning? Isn't that right? Yeah. I mean, it's, every day is a blank easel, and it's the same with a stage or a piece of paper. You put down and you learn, and you start writing what you know about, and then you go from there and develop that. And this is what students need. I think it helps students think out of the box to think more creatively, not necessarily think of something that hasn't been thought of before and reinventing the wheel, because honestly, I don't think you can do that. I mean, isn't that the struggle of the director, really? Yes. Yes, it is. (laughs) 
particularly when you've done when, when something has been done you know you pull out an old chestnut of play and, and and the reason I do a lot of older plays is because a in educational theater I think it's important that they have these older pieces to learn on for the same reason that I want them to do one a lot of directors poo-poo it which is the structure you know it's it's not as modern they may be, you know, the old three-act structure and all of that. I've made the same argument over and over. Is when you're introducing someone to the theater, you can't start with an experimental piece. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> they need to have something concrete, some grounding, and be able to dig around and start finding all of the psychological stuff that's going on, as well as the, the physical and environmental, all of that. And I think a lot of the classics are great with that. Then you come upon, well, what's a fresh way to approach it or, you know, making it relevant? Well, most of the classics are relevant because that's why they're classics. <laughs> well, Shakespeare managed to stick around for quite a while. He kind of <laughs> had a, yeah, he had a knack for that too, didn't he? History changes, but people don't. That's great. I may quote you on that. <laughs> <laughs> they're still going to have loves and hates and, you know, passions and all that. When you're working with students, how do you encourage self-awareness? Because I know that is, mm, that's that's a big one. It is a big one. And so many of them do lack that. Some of them have a more natural flow for it than others. But mm -hmm. one of the things I start out doing with all students in the beginning is I start kind of working with their body. And some basic exercises are I will have them walk around uh, in a big circle. I just want to watch them walk. And I let them walk for about a good 30 seconds to a minute. And then I will step in and mimic their walk behind them. And then I will tell them what part of the body it seems that they lead with. Because when we walk, we all lead with a certain part of our body. On stage, the men lead with their, their quads because it gives you a heavier step, a broader stride, and you can just feel the difference in it. Women, typically, they lead with their hips or their pelvis, so they have the kind of sway. A little bit on uh, Alexander technique, center your head. You act as if your head is floating on the top of your spine, and if you can relax your jaw and have your head floating like this, everything else falls into its natural alignment. I'm doing this as you're talking about it because I'm trying to see if I can do Take it. Take some concentration, you know, because yeah. especially if we're not used to doing that because we're so habitual in how we sit and stand, right. you know. Yeah, so you get them doing that and, and fall into a natural alignment and then show them how if they stand in a military stance, how it constricts your traps in the back, you know, and you can't get a full breath in front. And then obviously if you slouch, you're not going to be able to get a full breath either. But when we are in our neutral state, in our natural alignment, we breathe really good. We will move well and speak well and sing well. If you've got just a regular, you know, like a dining room chair, you can practice uh, sitting down. You sit down as one unit. We tend to flop. Yes. And we put, we put our tush down first. Our head is the last thing. If you go in slow motion and you pull that head up and snap it up, it's like slow motion whiplash. When you get up, we tend to thrust our chest forward and our head goes back and then we fling ourselves up out of the chair. If you use your feet to plant when you're sitting down, use your quads and just sit down. You don't have to be stick straight, but be mindful of your head and everything and not 
whipping your neck around and stuff. And same when you stand up, lean forward, brace yourself with your feet. And it's the old act like there is a string, you know, that's pulling you up from the top of your head. It sounds funny, but I've worked with choirs on having them practice standing and sitting during concerts. And it was like a herd (laughs) of elephants was running through, you know. Yes. It just reminded me that when I was in church choir, Laban Soul was our director, and he would call this ballet legs. And he would have everybody perched in a relaxed but ready position. Lift with your legs. Quit doing that rocking chair motion to get up out of your seat. Yes, exactly. And a lot of professional musicians know this, whether they're singers or instrumentalists. There are even classes for musicians to take with Alexander. Mm -hmm. But having said all of that, I do a little bit of that in these exercises to at least get the students thinking about their bodies. And a lot of times they'll say, Mr. Fonick, you know, I can't believe you got me. I'm, now I'm thinking about it every time I get, and I'm, well, good, good. I hope no matter what you do in your life, I hope you never forget that. I said, because it's also giving you more mileage with your body. You're not going to you, wear it out. Do you find that when you're standing in an elevator or waiting in line that you're thinking about it as well? It's kind of rote. Sometimes if I'm standing longer than I anticipated, whatever, I'll go, okay, let's do some breathing and practice <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it yep. takes your mind off of having to wait, you know, so you can yeah. and get your balance. Like a lot of exercises we use, one of the exercise with my private students. Um, also, uh, I think this helps with self awareness. It's a great tool. There's a book called Six Lessons. Richard Boleslawski. He was a I call it disciple of Stanislavski. He left <laughs> Moscow, uh, came to New York and started, I believe it was the Lab Theater, pretty much taught the system with his own things that made sense for him. And in the six lessons, one of them is um, observation. I think that's probably a really important tool for students to start learning is to observe. Mm -hmm. It's so easy, you know, after you've been on the computer. A lot of people like to blame the computer on a lot of things. Go to a public park, go to the library, go to a coffee house. They have to come up with two observations. Okay. And they have to write it down so they've got something that they can hand in to me, which I know is old-fashioned, too, because someone will say, can I just put it on my phone? And I said, well, then if you type it in your phone, is there a way you can print it out? I need a hard copy. I want to see what you observe. But not only that, they know they have to stand up and tell me about these observations. And if I feel like they might have missed something or if I didn't hear them describe the color of their eyes, then I'll ask questions during this thing while they're doing it. It gets them to start exercising the old brain. It starts getting to look at things with more detail. But it also helps them when they're doing monologues. You didn't stand like that when you were telling about your observation, you know. <laughs> I oh. said your body language was in on this, and, and you had this inflection, and I'll get them to think back about it, and they'll go, oh, that's what we're doing when we're talking about. You're up there giving them a monologue. Right. I said, and then all of a sudden you get these memorized words, and we stiffen up, and we get robotic, and then we start what I call manufacturing a character <laughs> in there Ooh. rather than just letting it flow. That's a great term. <laughs> I like that. Because <laughs> that's what it is. It's, it's it's more mechanical. It is. And, you know, younger students haven't lived a whole lot. Uh, Sanford Meisner had a great line that said it takes 20 years to become a fully rounded actor. I buy that. I do, too. <laughs> and the students kind of get puffed up and go, well, I've done this and this. I said, well, that's great. And you've had a whole 
lot of experience mimicking other adults. I said that you need to grow and experience all kinds of things and all kinds of relationships, sad things and happy things, you know, before you can implement that into a character to make that character have all the different colors. Isn't that one of the tricky things about directing educational theaters? Because you inevitably have to put a young person in the role that would normally be played by an older person. Yes, but they can learn from that too, I think. Um, Absolutely. I directed the musical company last February. Obviously, it's older, a little bit older people than the college age. And I told them from the get-go, I said, we're going to have fun. You're going to do this. I said, but I'm going to mature you (laughs) (laughs) to be able to, you know, and we're going to talk about what they're talking about. You know, some of you may have had experiences that are in these vignettes and some of you may not. So beware that on this one, there's some things that I'm just flat out going to tell you how you're going to approach it. (laughs) Yeah. Because I remember learning from playing characters that I didn't know a whole lot about. And there, here comes another thing that you need for educational theater, research. I did Garcia Lorca's Blood Wedding when I was in college. Wow. What did, what did I know about 19th century <laughs> weddings in Spain? Yeah. <laughs> you know, fortunately, uh, I think that was the year I was taking costuming as one of my classes. So I got to watch and work with the costumer as she did her research. And then I kind of took off and and did mine, too. You know, for instance, the wedding dress was black with a white veil. Little things like that, you know, that you go, oh, okay, see, I still remember it today. And this is what I try to impress upon the students, too. You know, observation's a good one. Research, you've got to know how to research. Do some research, you know, and come back and bring it. And we'll spend just a little bit of time of rehearsal talking about it as a group. For one thing, others can learn from it. For another thing, it helps you become an ensemble when you're bonding and and sharing information. Isn't that true for every job in the theater, whether you're a playwright, an actor, a director, a designer, that the research is critical. We're doing by spirit. These kids, very, very few of them know who No Coward is. If you're going to stay in this line of work, you need to know who No Coward is. We're putting it in the early 40s when it was written. So you've got, okay, right away you've got a period play. So the kids are going to have to learn about England in the early 40s. What was going on, hint, hint, the costuming, you know. Then uh, the set itself takes place all in, in their large mansion. So you've got that interesting thing going on. Then when you've got spirits coming and going, my goodness, you'll have light, special effects. You will have props. I just think it's going to be a lot of fun for costume, hair and makeup, lighting, you know, all the aspects that it takes to get a show up and running. I think they're going to have a whole lot of fun, you know. That sounds great. On that. I directed Cabaret. And in doing it, we had a lot of fun. Costume-wise, Randy Blair has a whole lot of fun. Oh, he's so good, too. He is. But the overarching thing I I came up with over that show was going from decadence to decay. All of the costumes you had in the opening number, they wore the same costumes at the end, only they were distressed. They were sepia-colored, ragged, and, and torn. And... I was so lucky to have Mike Pryor. He was our guest artist, and he did the MC. And we <laughs> talked about his character, and I wanted him just to think along the lines. He was Berlin. And so we had everything going from bright musical theater colors all the way to almost 
black and white at the end. Becky Eagleton did the <laughs> choreography for me, so it was fabulous, yeah. of course. But she had them marching in swastika, and <gasps> at first you see it on stage if you're sitting in the audience, and it looks. But then as they go around. You can see the shape of it. I couldn't have done it by myself. I had great Justin Peer, who does our lighting out at the school. He did the lights and the engagement party scene where they come in and sing Tomorrow Belongs to Me. We have all of these footlights, mm -hmm. and there was a scrim in the back. By the time we were finished and everybody had stood up, the main lights went out, and you just had these footlights throwing the images up on the scrim. So it looked like thousands of people, many of them doing the Heil sign. And they froze, and then the MC comes out, and he's got a cigar. And he stood there when he was center stage, and he tapped his index finger on the cigar, and he looked at the audience tapping the index finger on the top of his lip. So he made the mustache with the ashes. And then uh, looks back at everybody else and goes, huh, and shrugs and walks off and then lights out. I felt like it was very powerful. And then obviously in the second act is when we start seeing the deterioration. Oh, that sounds like it would be very effective. You know, you read other reviews and other what other people had done, and they were all great stuff. When we can bring in guest artists, they are to work with the students. That's part of their deal. And Mike did the coolest thing. We were doing the very ending, and he said, what, what do you want to do? And he had some ideas, and I said, you know what? We're blocking that tomorrow night. Just bring me all your ideas and let's look at them. Because I wanted the students to see how an actor does their homework, you know, yeah, and, and yeah. bringing something to the table. And they're watching him, and he did a couple of them. They were kind of giggling at some of them. And what he did, what we ended up doing was when he goes, ah, Vita, da-da-da-da, and he's, he's all beaten up and kind of crumpled over, and he just blew a kiss. Mm. And then the lights went out, and that was it. Mm. See what you can do as an actor. I said a director, you know, not everything a director has is in blueprint, and I think this is important for them to learn too. Be flexible, you know. Right. right. How many times have we as directors? I know I speak for myself. You go, okay, I want you to cross here, here, and you're watching it. You, you know, you block it, then you run it again. I stand there, I'm looking at it, and I'm like, who thought of that? <laughs> Let's try <laughs> something different. <laughs> no. I don't know. I have, I got nothing, basically, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's the thing about educational theater especially. How do you create an environment where the students are confident enough to collaborate with you without giving them so much room to try and take over and do the whole production for you? Oh, that is such a good point, Sally, because I've seen some do that with educational theater, and I don't think the student learns anything at all. Mm -hmm. You know, that's great for experienced actors if you want to be really organic about it. Greenland's coming in, they don't know. They don't know what their options are, so they don't know what to do. Right. You know? Well, yeah, tell me, how, how do you teach that, though? Is there something specific that you can do with your students that says, we're collaborators, but I'm the boss? Yeah, and it, I think it was Uta Hagen that said this, and I so agree with it. Movement is about destination, whether it's an emotional thing or a physical thing. You're going to or getting away from something. If something's uncomfortable, you know, and the couple's talking, and then you have them cross, or sometimes most actors, it's just a natural, they cross. They're getting away from that uncomfortable point right there. Sure, You know what sure. I'm saying? So we talk about that a lot, and sometimes they'll say, you know, can I move here to here? And it's... And if it makes sense and it works, I'll say, yeah. And I think that's 
one of the best ways for them to learn. If they respect you and appreciate you as a director trying to make this show for them and have them learn how to make the show for them, I always tell them, if you've got a question about something I've done or you come up with an idea, I am all for that up until about two weeks before we open. <laughs> yep. Uh, then messing around in rehearsal and finding things has to stop and we have to start solidifying because we need cues because people depend on that. Every show develops its own rhythm. And I always tell them I love a thinking actor because, you know, when so someone drops a pillow or, you know, there's something that falls or breaks or whatever. An earring flies off. Yes, yes. <laughs> Pick it up. And that's whether you're a theater person or not. Those things are noticed by audience members with and without theater experience. Yes, they do. So I think in answer to your question, it's it's not just one thing. I think it's them having to learn. And and every director is different. Uh, I had a director, one director in college, who even showed me how he wanted me to hold uh, my champagne glass. Sure. He obviously wanted a very specific look, and you have to respect that. At that point, he's the director. <laughs> right, right. I've directed as I've gotten older. I do less and less of that, I noticed. And the, the thing that I keep in my head is that everything is driven by fear or desire on stage that seems to work it's like what are you afraid of like you were saying what are you running from it motivates everything what do you want it really goes back to the old what we call the old goat sheet g-o-t-e your goal mm -hmm. your obstacle what tactic are you going to use to get around that obstacle and what are your expectations oh that's good yeah like it's real basic but man it keeps you grounded you are just so gracious to talk to me and and as my friend Thank you. Thank you. Thank oh, you. It is good to hear your voice, and it is great to catch up with you. So. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much for asking me. It's now time for Concise Advice from the Interview. A short version of the best tips from my guest. Today, I have seven great bits of advice from the beautiful, experienced, and talented Lisa Stefanik. Number seven, learn everything you can from people with experience. Number six, bring something to contribute to the rehearsal process. Number five, collaborate with your director. Not everything she has is a blueprint. Number four, be flexible. Number three, when you are on stage, be in the moment. Number two, develop some body awareness. And the number one piece of advice from Lisa Stefanik, do your research. That's it for concise advice from the interview. Thanks to Lisa Stefanik for taking time out to talk about educational theater. Next week, I'll post an interview with playwright Nicole Zimmerer, a fresh new voice in the theater world and a staunch proponent for actors with physical limitations. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sally, and this is Sally Pal. The Pal stands for Performing Arts Lab. Check out my blog. It's sallypal.com. Be sure to share, share, share. Let's work together to encourage new works for the stage. You can find Sally Pal on iTunes and Stitcher. Of course, you can always find the blog and the podcast on my website, sallypal.com. Look for my posts on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. If you like it, press the like button. 
And if you really like it, please share and help me get the word out. And now, I have just one bit of wisdom from George, my husband, the coolest guy on the planet. Hey, George, what's your wisdom for today? You get in life what you have the courage to ask for. Well said, George. Well said. Excellent advice indeed. Remember, all the performances you've seen on stage once lived only in someone's imagination. Now it's your turn. Thanks so much for listening. The podcast and the blog benefit from your comments, and I love hearing from you. Sally Pal episodes are posted on Monday evenings, except for, of course, when technical difficulties get in the way. So please spread the word. I'm still working on my free ebook to help organize your production. Look for it soon on sallypal.com. I want to help you learn to produce and direct original shows. It's what I do, and you can too. Castilian look about you. So. Yeah, well, that's as far as it went. Good grief. Yeah, you sound like you got a busy day going That's there. my other, I don't know why that is. I'm trying to get away from it. <laughs> run, run away, run away. away. Today's episode is an interview. If you're a fan of Weird Al, if you're a fan of Weird Al Young, why can I not say his name?